Section 8 of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Craig Clayton. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo de Amicis, translated by Isabel Florence Hepgood. January, Part 1. The Assistant Master, Wednesday the 4th. My father was right. The master was in a bad humour because he was not well. For the past three days, in fact, the assistant had been coming in his stead, that little man without a beard who looks like a boy. A shameful thing happened this morning. There had been an uproar on the first and second days in the school because the assistant is very patient and does nothing but say, Be quiet, be quiet, I beg of you. But this morning they passed all bounds. Such a noise arose that his words were no longer audible, and he admonished and besought, but it was a mere waste of breath. Twice the principal appeared at the door and looked in, but the moment he went away the murmur increased as in a market. It was in vain that De Rossi and Garon turned round and made signs to the fellows to be good, that it was a shame. No one paid any heed to them. Stadi alone remained quiet, with his elbows on the bench and his fists to his temples, thinking perhaps about his famous library. And Geroffi, he of the hooked nose and postage stamps, who was wholly occupied in making a catalogue of subscribers at two centesimi each for a lottery for a pocket inkstand. The rest chattered and laughed, pounded on the points of pens fixed in the benches, and snapped pellets of paper at each other with the elastics of their garters. The assistant grasped now one, now another, by the arm, and shook him, and he placed one of them against the wall. Time wasted. He no longer knew what to do, and he entreated them, Why do you behave like this? Do you wish to make me punish you? And then he thumped the little table with his fist and shouted in a voice, angry but tearful, Silence! 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 It was hard to hear him, but the noise kept getting louder. Franti threw a paper dart at him. Some gave kite calls, others thumped each other on the head. The hurly-burly was indescribable, when all of a sudden the beadle entered and said, Senior Master, the principal has sent for you. The teacher rose and went out in haste with a gesture of despair. And then the tumult began more vigorously than ever, but suddenly Garon sprang up, his face all flaming, his fists clenched, and shouted in a voice choked with rage, Stop this! You are brutes! You take advantage of him because he is kind. If he were to bruise your bones for you, you would be as humble as dogs. You're a pack of cowards. The first one of you that jeers at him again, I shall wait for outside, and I shall break his teeth for him, I swear it, even under his father's very eyes. All grew silent. Ah, what a fine thing it was to see Garon with his eyes darting flames. He seemed to be a furious young lion. He stared at the most daring, one after the other, and all hung their heads. When the assistant came back with red eyes, not a breath was to be heard. He stood in amazement, and then, catching sight of Garon, who was still all fiery and trembling, he understood it all, and he said to him, 
with accents of great affection as to a brother. I thank you, Garon. Stadi's Library I've been home with Stadi, who lives opposite the schoolhouse, and I really felt some envy at the sight of his library. He's not at all rich, and he cannot buy many books, but he preserves his school books with great care, as well as those which his relatives give him, and he lays aside every soldo he is given to him, and spends it at the booksellers. In this way he's collected quite a little library, and when his father saw that he had this passion, he bought him a handsome bookcase of walnut wood with a green curtain, and he's had most of his volumes bound for him in the colours that he likes. When he draws a little cord, the green curtain runs back, and three rows of books of every colour are seen, all ranged in order and shining with gilt titles on their backs, books of tales, of travels and of poetry, and some illustrated ones. He understands how to combine colours well. He places the white volumes next to the red ones and the yellow next to the black, the blue beside the white, so that, viewed from a distance, they make a very fine show, and he amuses himself by varying the combinations. He's made himself a catalogue. He's like a librarian. He's always standing near his books, dusting them, turning over the leaves, looking at the bindings. It's something to see the care with which he opens them, with his big stubby hands and blows between the pages. And then they seem perfectly new again. I've worn out all of mine. It's a delight for him to polish off every new book that he buys, to put it in its place, and to pick it up again to take another look at it from all sides, and to brood over it as a treasure. He showed me nothing else for a whole hour. His eyes were troubling him because he'd read too much. His father, who is large and thick-set like himself, with a big head like his, and who happened to come in the room, gave him two or three taps on the nape of his neck, saying with that huge voice of his, What do you think of him, eh? Of this head of bronze? It's a stout head that will succeed in anything, I assure you. And Stadi half closed his eyes under those rough caresses like a big hunting dog. I do not know why, but I did not dare to jest with him. I could not realise that he was only a year older than myself. And when he said to me, farewell until we meet again, at the door, with that funny face of his, I came very near to replying, I salute you, sir, as to a man. I told my father afterwards at home, I don't understand it. Stadi has no natural talent, he lacks fine manners, and his face is almost ridiculous, and yet he inspires me with respect. It is because he has character, replied my father. And I added, during the hour that I spent with him, he didn't utter fifty words, he didn't show me a single plaything, he didn't laugh once, and yet I'd liked to go there. And my father answered, that's because you value his society. The blacksmith's son. Yes, but I also value Prokosi's society. Indeed, it is a stronger feeling. Prokosi, the son of the blacksmith. That thin little fellow who has kind, sad eyes and a frightened air, who is so timid that he says to everyone, excuse me, who is always sickly and who nevertheless studies so much. His father goes home drunk and beats him without the slightest reason in the world and tosses his books and his copybooks in every direction. And Prokosi comes to school with the black and blue marks on his face and sometimes with his face all swollen and his eyes red with weeping. 
but never, never can he be made to acknowledge that his father beats him. Your father's been beating you, the boys say to him. That's not true, that's not true, he cries to avoid shaming his father. You did not burn this leaf, the teacher says to him, showing him his work, half burned. Yes, he replies in a trembling voice, I let it fall on the fire. But we know very well, nevertheless, that his drunken father overturned the table and the light with a kick while the boy was doing his work. He lives in a garret of our house, reached by another staircase. The janitress tells my mother everything. My sister Sylvia heard him screaming from the terrace one day when his father had thrown him headlong downstairs because he'd asked for a few soldi to buy a grammar. His father drinks but does not work, and his family suffers from hunger. Often Prokosi comes to school with an empty stomach and nibbles in secret at a roll which Garon had given him, or at an apple brought to him by the schoolmistress with the red feather who was his teacher at the first lower class. But he never says, I'm hungry, my father doesn't give me anything to eat. His father sometimes comes for him when he chances to be passing the schoolhouse, pale, unsteady on his legs, with a fierce face, his hair over his eyes and his cap awry, and the poor boy trembles all over when he catches sight of him in the street. But he immediately runs to meet him with a smile, and his father doesn't appear to see him, but seems to be thinking of something else. Poor Prokosi. He mends his torn copybooks, borrows books to study his lessons, fastens the fragments of his shirt together with pins. It is pathetic to see him going through his gymnastics with those huge shoes in which he is fairly lost, in those trousers which drag on the ground, and that jacket which is too long and those huge sleeves turned back to the very elbows. And he studies. He does his best. He would be one of the best if he were able to work at home in peace. This morning he came to school with the marks of fingernails on one cheek, and they all began to say to him, It was your father, and you cannot deny it this time. It was your father who did that to you. Tell the principal about it, and he will have him arrested for it. But he sprang up, all flushed, with his voice trembling with indignation. It's not true, it's not true, my father never beats me. But afterwards, during lesson time, his tears fell upon the bench, and when anyone looked at him, he tried to smile in order that he might not show it. Poor Prakosi. Tomorrow, Garossi, Coretti and Nelly are coming to my house. I want to tell him to come also. I want to have him take luncheon with me. I want to treat him to books and turn the house upside down to amuse him and to fill his pockets with fruit for the sake of seeing him happy for once. Poor Prakosi who is so good and so brave. A fine visit, Thursday the 12th. This has been one of the finest Thursdays of the year for me. At two o'clock precisely, De Rossi and Coretti came to the house with Nelly, the hunchback. But of course his father did not let him come. De Rossi and Coretti were still laughing at their encounter with Crossi, the son of the vegetable seller in the street, the boy with the useless arm and the red hair, who was carrying a large cabbage for sale. With the soldo which he was to receive for the cabbage, he was to go and buy a pen. He was perfectly happy because his father had written from America that they might expect him any day. Oh, the two delightful hours that we passed together! De Rossi and Coretti are the two jolliest boys in the school. My father fell in love with them. 
Coretti had on his chocolate-coloured jacket and his cat-skin cap. He's a lively imp, who's always wants to be doing something, stirring up something, setting something to going. He'd already carried on his shoulders half a cartload of wood early that morning. Nevertheless, he pranced all over the house, taking note of everything and talking incessantly, as sprightly and nimble as a squirrel. Going into the kitchen, he asked the cook how much we had to pay a milligram for wood, because his father sells it at forty-five centesimi. He's always talking of his father, of the time when he was a soldier in the 49th Regiment, at the Battle of Custoza, where he served in the squadron of Prince Umberto. He is so gentle in his manners. It makes no difference that he was born and brought up surrounded by wood. He has nobility in his blood, in his heart so my father says. And Dorossi amused us greatly. He knows geography like a teacher. He shut his eyes and said, There I see the whole of Italy, the Apennines which extend to the Ionian Sea, the rivers flowing here and there, the white cities, the gulfs, the blue bays, the green islands. And he repeated the names correctly in their order and very rapidly as though he were reading them on the map. And at the sight of him standing thus, with his head held high, with all his golden curls, with his closed eyes, and all dressed in bright blue with gilt buttons, as straight and handsome as a statue, we could not help admiring him. In one hour he had learnt by heart nearly three pages which he is to recite the day after tomorrow for the anniversary of the funeral of King Vittorio. Nelly also gazed at him in wonder and affection, smoothing the folds of his black cloth apron and smiling with his clear and mournful eyes. This visit gave me a great deal of pleasure. It left something like sparks in my mind and my heart. And it pleased me too when they went away to see poor Nelly between the other two tall, strong fellows who carried him home on their arms and made him laugh as I've never seen him laugh before. On going back into the dining room, I noticed that the picture of Rigoletto, the hunchback jester, was no longer there. My father had taken it away in order that Nelly might not see it. The Funeral of Victor Emmanuel, Tuesday the 17th. Today, at two o'clock, as soon as we had entered the schoolroom, the master called up the Rossi, who went and took his place in front of the little table facing us, and began to recite in his vibrating tones, gradually raising his limpid voice and growing flushed in the face. Four years ago, on this day, at this hour, there arrived in front of the Pantheon at Rome the funeral car which bore the body of Victor Emmanuel, the first king of Italy, dead after a reign of twenty-nine years, during which the great Italian fatherland, broken up into seven states and oppressed by strangers and by tyrants, had been brought back to life in one single state, free and independent. After a reign of twenty-nine years, which he had made illustrious and beneficent with his valour, with loyalty, with boldness amid perils, with wisdom amid triumphs, with constancy amid fortune, the funeral car arrived, laden with wreaths, after having traversed Rome under a rain of flowers, amid the silence of an immense and sorrowing multitude, which had assembled from every part of Italy. Preceded by a legion of generals and by a throng of ministers and princes, 
followed by a retinue of corporal veterans, by a forest of banners, by the envoys of three hundred towns, by everything which represents the power and glory of a people, it arrived before the august temple where the tomb awaited it. At that moment, twelve cuirassiers removed the coffin from the car. At that moment, Italy bade her last farewell to her dead king, to her old monarch whom she had loved so dearly, the last farewell to her soldier, to her father, to the twenty-nine most fortunate and most blessed years in her history. It was a grand and solemn moment. The eyes, the souls of all, were quivering at the sight of that coffin, and the darkened banners of the eighty regiments of the Army of Italy, borne by eighty officers, drawn up in line on its passage. For Italy was there in those eighty tokens, which recalled the thousands of dead, the torrents of blood, our most sacred glories, our most holy sacrifices, our most tremendous griefs. The coffin, borne by the cuirassiers, passed, and then the banners bent forward, and altogether in salute. The banners of the new regiments, the old tattered banners of Giotto and Pastrengo, of Santa Lucia, of Novara, of Crimea, of Palstro, of San Martino, of Calis, of Castelfidardo. Eighty black veils fell, a hundred medals clashed against the staves, and that sonorous and confused uproar which stirred the blood of all was like the sound of a thousand human voices saying together, Farewell, good king, gallant king, loyal king. You will live in the hearts of your people as long as the sun shall shine over Italy. After this the banners rose heavenward once more, and King Victor entered into the immortal glory of the tomb. Franti expelled from school, Saturday 21st. Only one boy was capable of laughing while Derossi was declaiming the funeral oration of the king. It was Franti. I detest that fellow. He's wicked. When a father comes to the school to reprove his son, he enjoys it. When anyone cries, he laughs. He cowers before Garon and he strikes the little mason because he is small. He torments Grossi because he has a helpless arm. He ridicules Perecosi, whom everyone respects. He even jeers at Robetti, that boy in the second grade who walks on crutches through having saved a child. He provokes those who are weaker than himself, and when it comes to blows, he grows savage and tries to do harm. There is something beneath that low forehead in those turbid eyes kept nearly concealed under the visor of his small cap of waxed cloth, which inspires a shudder. He fears no one. He laughs in the master's face. He steals when he gets a chance and denies it brazenly. He's always in a quarrel with someone. He brings big pins to school to prick his neighbours with. He tears the buttons from his own jackets and from those of others and plays with them. His paper, books and copybooks are all crushed, torn, dirty. His ruler is jagged, his pens gnawed, his nails bitten, his clothes covered with stains and rents which he's got in his brawls. 
They say that his mother has fallen ill from the trouble that he causes her, and that his father has driven him from the house three times. His mother comes every now and then to make inquiries, and she always goes away in tears. He hates the school, he hates his companions, he hates the teacher. The master sometimes pretends not to see his rascalities, and he behaves all the worse. The master tried to get hold of him by kind treatment, and the boy ridiculed him for it. The master said terrible things to him, and the boy covered his face with his hands as though he were crying, but he was laughing. He was suspended from school for three days, and he came back more perverse and insolent than before. Derossi said to him one day, Stop it! Don't you see how much the teacher suffers? And the other threatened to stick a nail into his stomach. But this morning at last he got himself driven out like a dog. While the master was giving to Goron the rough draft of the Sardinian drummer boy, the monthly story for January, to copy, Franti threw a petard on the floor which exploded, making the schoolroom resound as from a discharge of musketry. The whole class was startled by it. The master sprang to his feet and cried, Franti, leave the school! Franti retorted, it wasn't I, but he laughed. The master repeated, go. I won't stir, he answered. And then the master lost his temper and flung himself upon him, seized him by the arms and tore him from his seat. He resisted, ground his teeth and made him carry him out by main force. The master bore him thus heavy as he was to the principal and then came back alone and seated himself at his little table with his head clutched in his hands, out of breath and with a look of such weariness and trouble that it was painful to see him. After teaching school for thirty years, he exclaimed sadly, shaking his head. No one breathed. His hands were shaking with fury, and the crosswise wrinkle in the middle of his forehead was so deep that it seemed like a wound. Poor master! All felt sorry for him. Derossi rose and said, Senior master, do not grieve, we love you. And then he grew calmer, and he said, We will go on with the lesson, boys. End of section 8 Recording by Grey Clayton.